You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Erwin Cherminsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. He's the author of the leading textbook on constitutional law and has argued numerous cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. His new book is The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. Thank you for joining me, Dean Cherminsky. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. You know, one of the things that struck me about your book was what you call majoritarianism. I think that's like a major theme of this book. Uh, uh, and what what really we're in a danger of, it sounds like, is the tyranny of the majority. In some areas, undoubtedly, that's true. The Supreme Court has refused to check the majority when it's wanted to take away rights of criminal defendants. It's refused to check the majority when it wants to take away the wall separating church and state. Interestingly, though, the conservatives on the Supreme Court are unwilling to defer to the majority in some areas. When the majority of Congress and the president passed campaign finance, that was a reform that was favored by the overwhelming majority of the people, there was no deference by the conservatives on the Supreme Court to the majority. When state and local governments have wanted to create various forms of affirmative action programs, the conservatives strike them down. There's no deference to the majority there. So I think the conservatives' majoritarianism is when it favors their ideological agenda but there's no deference to the majority when the conservative ideological agenda would call for striking down what the majority has done. Your book starts with a, a really powerful case, the Andrade case. Tell us about that case and, and how you came to be involved in, and what happened, which is just stunning and terrifying. It's Stalinesque. Leandro Andrade was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 50 years for stealing $150 of videotapes from Kmart stores in San Bernardino, California. He received this sentence under California's Three Strikes Law, even though he'd never committed a violent crime. His prior offenses have been burglaries of unoccupied homes. Prior to California's Three Strikes Law, no one in the history of the United States had ever received a life sentence for shoplifting. The way I got involved was, after Andrade was convicted and sentenced, The California Court of Appeal upheld his sentence, and the California Supreme Court denied review. He filed on his own what's called a petition for habeas corpus in federal court, this petition saying that he's being held unconstitutionally by the state of California. There is no right to an attorney on habeas corpus, which I did on his own. The federal district court ruled against Andrade. I was appointed by the United States Court of Appeals to represent Andrade, I did. I won two to one in the Court of Appeals. They're finding that Andrade's sentence was cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The state of California then sought Supreme Court review, and the Supreme Court reversed the Ninth Circuit and upheld the sentence in a five to four vote. This is such a, a, a stunning case. Now, this is, let's mention, too, that you did this work pro bono. And that's that's a very interesting uh, stance. That that that's a uh, the work of an impassioned man, and I think we get that throughout this book. And I think you do a good job of showing us your passion, but not overplaying that card. Thank you. Uh, talk about 
what brings you to these cases? Because because this this case was the Andrade case was just one of many three strikes cases that resulted in and what seemed to any reasonable person insane levels of punishment. And why would the United States federal government decide that it had to make sure that some guy does life imprisonment for Let me that? Correct one thing: it was not the federal oh. government that imposed the sentence. It's the California state three strikes law mm-hmm. that he was sentenced under. California voters passed an initiative back in 1994, and California is one of about half the states in the country with the three strikes law. But California's three strikes law is the most draconian. California is the only state where the third strike doesn't have to be a serious or a violent felony. California is the only state where a person can be sentenced to life for shoplifting. The first three strikes case I got involved in involved a man by the name of Stanley Durden, who got sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years for stealing an umbrella and two bottles of cheap liquor worth a total of $47 from a lucky supermarket store in Long Beach, California. These things are incredible. Now, my my, uh, question is, though, when this comes to the Supreme Court, what what makes uh, the what made the administration in charge not just say we don't want to waste the government's time and the Supreme Court's time in prosecuting this? What would make the Bush administration prosecute this? That seems crazy. Again, keep in mind it was the state of California mm-hmm. that had to make the choice whether or not to take this to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's interesting that there was then what we thought to be a relatively liberal Attorney General. Bill Lockyer. Mm-hmm. Why did Bill Lockyer seek Supreme Court review after the state lost in the Ninth Circuit? There's no requirement that the Attorney General appeal. We saw with regard to the Prop 8 case that Jerry Brown wouldn't appeal and defend Prop 8 when he was Attorney General. I think politics explain this. Lockyer at that time was still imagining that he was going to run for governor of California. The three strikes law was very popular, and so he felt politically he needed to defend it and take it to the Supreme Court. Now, the Bush administration chose to participate in the case, Mm -hmm. even though it didn't involve a federal law, and came in on the side of California's three strikes law. I think it's about the politics and ideology of the time. Politicians compete with one another to show who's tougher on crime. There's no constituency for protecting criminals. (laughs) And as a result, you've seen over the last decades a tremendous increase in the length of sentences to things like three strikes and mandatory minimums. We have an incarceration rate in this country far in excess of that anywhere else in the world. And this is a very costly uh, uh, thing to, to pursue, too. I mean, keeping these people in jail is not... We're paying $40,000 a year to keep a man who stole $150 worth of videotapes in jail. It costs between forty dollars and $50,000 a year to incarcerate an individual. And the costs will increase as the prisoners get older. Take Leandro Andrade. As a result of the Supreme Court's decision, he is not eligible for parole until the year 2046 when he'll be 87 years old. As you have geriatric prisoners, their medical care costs skyrocket and the cost to the government of incarceration get ever greater just for stealing $150 worth of videotapes. Now, in your book, you trace a, a lot of this back to the Nixon years and his uh, ability, and this is kind of shocking and scary to us, to me now, to appoint four Supreme Court judges 
Tell us about the four he appointed and the political reasoning beyond that, behind that. And also the seed of this went back even further to 1964, didn't it? I actually think that 1964 was a sea change for the Republican Party. The Republican Party became notably more conservative with Barry Goldwater's run for president. And the seeds what became the modern political division started then. Prior to 1964, the South was solidly Democrat and had been ever since the Civil War. Conservative Democrat, but Democrat. And the Roosevelt coalition, coalition had been based on Southern Democrats and also Northern Democrats, especially Northern liberals. Well, the Goldwater strategy, which was unsuccessful, but then used very successfully Richard Nixon, was to have Republicans appeal to Southern states. Richard Nixon played that to get elected to president. He very much campaigned against the Warren Court. It was a thinly veiled attack on the Warren Court's desegregation orders. He proclaimed the need for law and order. He ran against the Warren Court, and he put together the strategy of Republicans winning by carrying the South, and Republicans have won the presidency except for Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, and all the elections since 1968. To take this back to the Supreme Court, between 1968 and 2009, Republicans named 12 justices to the Supreme Court. Democrats named two justices to the Supreme Court. Some of those Republicans were among the most conservative justices to ever sit on the Supreme Court. Men like Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, John Roberts, Samuel Alito. That's really the story of this book. Now, one of the things you trace in this book, too, is this This is not just the Supreme Court. This is a, a, a power grab on what you call from the imperial presidency. And we have a couple other players in there that are familiar to us today, but reached right back to the Nixon and right back to Roberts and all these other people in the Nixon administration, uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney. I think it's a mistake to focus just on the Supreme Court or just on the federal courts, because what the Supreme Court has done in moving constitutional law in a conservative direction is part of a much larger conservative movement. And certainly the Republican presidents, especially Nixon and Reagan and Bush and Bush, are quite conservative and have moved constitutional law in realms that presidents influence to the right. And there are some familiar names who resurface. Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney played key roles in the Nixon administration. Then when you get to the Reagan administration, in different ways, they played important roles. Cheney was a congressman from Wyoming who was at the time very much an advocate of broad presidential power. And the very things that Cheney and Rumsfeld urged during the Reagan years and before that in the Nixon years then come to fruition when they're in key positions in the Bush administration, Secretary of Defense and Vice President, and a lot of the abuses, horrible abuses of power, can be traced back to the philosophy that they had been espousing for decades. Now, one of the things that you talk about in this book, and I think this is very, very interesting, is what I would call newspeak, a couple of real key phrases that have been pulled out of thin air and sound like they mean something, but meant absolutely nothing until they were coined. And the first was uh, Nixon, who said he was going to appoint strict constitutionalists to the Supreme Court. That wasn't a that was not a term that had ever existed before he created it. Right. 
often called a strict constructionist. Mm -hmm. And again, you've got to remember, this is in the context of a campaign against the Warren Court. Mm. And his campaign against the Warren Court was most vocally about its decisions protecting the rights of criminal defendants. He proclaimed the need for law and order. But he was also attacking the Warren Court decisions that were busing for desegregation. And for that matter, he was attacking, though often without stating it, the Warren Court decisions that had ordered the desegregation of the South. This was part of his appeal to building a Southern base. It's what got him elected, but it certainly then led to justices and judges who brought about what he had been articulating. Now, you take a strict uh, quickly to what you call separate and unequal schools. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very interesting. I, I mean, I found it kind of shocking when I read this phrase in your book that there's no right to education, which seems, again, crazy. In 1973, in a case called San Antonio Board of Education versus Rodriguez, the Supreme Court expressly held five to four that there is no right to education under the U.S. Constitution. Now, this is a case that would have come out differently if only it had gotten to the Supreme Court a few years earlier when it was still the Warren Court. But in 1973, four Nixon appointees to the court, who you've already alluded to, Berger, Blackman, Powell, and Rehnquist, joined one holdover justice, Potter Stewart, to say that disparities in school funding, even enormous differences in spending between, say, city schools and suburban schools in the same metropolitan area don't violate the Constitution. One of the most incredible stories is is the school district that was going to simply shut down before they would would allow segregation. There's certainly a number of school districts. The one you mentioned was in Virginia that said that it would close rather than desegregate. Even more stunning, as I point out, Alabama amended its state constitution to specifically say there is no right to education in the state of Alabama so as to facilitate being able to close public schools rather than desegregate them. All this is very scary. Another kind of sideways assault on, on, on the Constitution is, is to put like people who are um, anti-civil rights advocates, people who have stated positions against civil rights in the federal government working for the Civil Rights Administration. We saw this with the, with the Bush administration, but this started a long time ago, didn't it? Well, it was most notable during the Reagan administration when a man by the name of William Bradford Reynolds was made the assistant attorney general for civil rights. Um, hard to imagine an individual more against what we would think of as civil rights, vehemently against enforcement of anti-discrimination laws, vehemently against affirmative action. And he was ultimately denied confirmation for position of associate attorney general because of his anti-civil rights views. So he had to stay in charge of the civil rights division. <laughs> This is very scary. Could you talk about – you talk about something I think is very interesting about uh, the the current uh, Supreme Court has talked a lot about colorblindness. And this is a kind of a, almost one of a number of what seem like catch-22 phrases that allow them to um, say black's white and white's black and whatever we say it is, it is. The reality is – that our society remains tremendously racially unequal. A black child born today has a one out of three chance of being born below the poverty line. One out of four black men between the ages of 15 and 30 is in some form of government custody, prison, jail, probation, parole. At every age level, African Americans have higher morbidity and mortality. The question is, how do we deal with this? 
Well, the conservatives on the court have said that the Constitution requires colorblindness. So school districts can't use race in assigning students to desegregate. College universities, from their perspective, shouldn't be able to use race to effect, eliminate the effects of past discrimination. The Constitution doesn't say colorblindness. The Constitution says equal protection. Conservatives are fond of saying they want to follow the original intent of the framers. Well, if there's ever a place where the original intent of the framers is clear, it's that the very Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also adopted many color-conscious remedies, many things that today we'd consider affirmative action. We get our first taste of something, uh, of a phrase, um, in when you start talking about the uh, imperious presidency. And this phrase is going to come up again and again. So I'd like you to define it and give us a, a grounding in it. Habeas corpus. What is habeas sure. corpus? Habeas corpus comes to the United States from England. It was called, quote, the Great Writ. Habeas corpus is a legal proceeding that allows a person who claims to be held unconstitutionally to seek a remedy from the court. In fact, Article I, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution says Congress cannot suspend the writ of habeas corpus except in cases of rebellion or invasion. So it simply is a legal paper that's filed in a court that says, I'm being held unconstitutionally, order my release. This has a lot of uh, blowback now, and you got personally involved with, with the uh, detainees in, in Guantanamo Bay. Tell us about how you came involved in your, in your efforts to, to secure a writ of habeas corpus. It was not easy, was it? The first reports of individuals being taken to Guantanamo was over Martin Luther King Day weekend in 2002. You might remember then that the reports of individuals being taken drugged, blindfolded, gagged, chained, and being put in eight-foot-by-eight-foot cages in Guantanamo. A civil rights lawyer in Los Angeles, Stephen Yagman, called me and was horrified by these reports and said somebody should file a habeas corpus petition for them, claiming that they being held in violation of the Constitution and international law. And would I help him with it? Could we do it together? And indeed, we filed an emergency habeas corpus petition on behalf of the first Guantanamo detainees on Martin Luther King Day in 2002. And I argued the first Guantanamo case on their behalf in February in the Federal District Court and then the Federal Court of Appeals in July of 2002. They dismissed the case saying that we didn't have the legal authority to represent the Guantanamo detainees. After the Federal Court of Appeals was, heard the case, there was a report about it in the, in the Los Angeles Times, and the brother of a Guantanamo detainee got in touch with us and said, would you represent my sibling? Would you file a habeas corpus petition for him? And I did, and have been involved in representing him ever since. And he remains in Guantanamo eight and a half years later. Well, talk uh, about what happened to you because, you know, you, you said in hindsight you would have uh, changed things, what you said, and, and you received hate mail. I mean, this was not like an easy case for you to take. Again, pro bono. Um, the lawsuit was filed on the Monday, Martin Luther King Day, and the first press reports began to come out immediately of the lawsuit. I, just because of prior scheduling, had to fly from Los Angeles to New York on that Monday to do a lecture on Tuesday morning. And when I landed in New York on Monday night, quite late, my cell phone messages were full. I got invited to be on every morning talk show 
to talk about the lawsuit um, as well as any other media outlet you can think of wanting to do it. And I talked to Stephen Yagman, and we decided not to do any media appearances, and I turned down all of the invitations. The thinking was we didn't want to seem that we were doing this just for publicity purposes, and by going out and talking to the media and going on the Today Show and Good Morning America would give too much of the impression that we were just doing this for media attention. I think that was a huge mistake in hindsight. I think that it was so important at that point to articulate the rule of law, that even in the context of the war on terror, just four months after September 11th, the United States government still was obligated to follow the Constitution and international law, and it wasn't doing so. That's been the central question with regard to the war on terror for the last decade. Can the government ignore the rule of law in trying to make the country safer? And I think we missed a unique opportunity to articulate the importance of the, context, the rule of law in the context of the war on terror. Um, so I've regretted everything that. In terms of the hate mail, I turned on my computer on Tuesday morning before going off to give my speech in New York, and I had over 200 of the most vile hate messages you can imagine. Uh, my assistant at USC called campus, I was teaching the University of California at the time, called campus security because of the phone messages that she received. Um, but, you know, that's what a delete key is for. <laughs> One of the things that, that you talk about is the... Um, the president's wiretapping, but you know, it goes back further. I didn't realize that in World War One they passed laws restricting free speech. This is incredible. Very much so. Um, in fact, I think one of the central lessons of American history is that in times of crisis, there's a tendency towards repression, taking away civil liberties. Then we come to realize, in hindsight, we weren't made any safer. During World War I, Congress passed two statutes in 1917 and 1918 that made it a federal crime to criticize the draft or the war effort. One man was sentenced under this law to 10 years in prison for simply circulating a leaflet arguing that the military draft was involuntary servitude in violation of the 13th Amendment. Another man, a very famous socialist leader, Eugene Debs, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for saying to an audience of college-age students, you are good for more than cannon fodder. There's more I'd like to say, but I can't for fear of going to prison. And the Supreme Court upheld these convictions and sentences. One of the things you talk about is the small cadre of people pushing these big changes, starting with Nixon. And I never heard of the Impoundment Control Act before I read your book. And this is very interesting. I use the example of impoundment to describe the conservative view of broad presidential power. Richard Nixon took the view that he as president had the authority to impound, to refuse to spend money that Congress had passed a law that the president had signed and money had been appropriated. So imagine Congress passed an appropriations bill for money for, say, some social program and the president signs the appropriations bill. It's the law. Nixon said, even though I signed it, I should have the right as president to choose not to spend money that Congress wanted to spend. I can impound those funds. And Nixon claimed that's an inherent part of presidential power. Congress in 1974 passed a law called the Impoundment Control Act that said that the president doesn't have the authority to do this. Interestingly, Nixon took the view that the Impoundment Control Act was unconstitutional, that the president had the inherent authority to do this. And some of the architects of the Nixon position were the familiar names we've mentioned, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. 
you talk about warrantless wiretapping, and this is a very interesting thing to me because this is a kind of technology that the, the founders simply could not have foreseen, especially now in the electronic age when it's wireless wiretapping and email monitoring and email filtering. This is something, I think, beyond anything that the, the people who wrote the Constitution could even have begun to conceive. And it seems like one of the themes is the uh, an assault on the Fourth Amendment. There are many ways in which the Fourth Amendment, which protects all of our privacy by regulating searches and arrests by the government, have been lessened, that there's been a real assault on the Fourth Amendment. Um, the Bush administration claimed that it had the inherent authority to engage in massive warrantless electronic eavesdropping, notwithstanding a federal law that prohibited this and the Fourth Amendment. The Supreme Court, in a whole series of decisions, is really cut back on the Fourth Amendment. And what's important to realize is it's not just criminals or terrorist privacy that's lost. When the Supreme Court and the President cut back on the Fourth Amendment's protections, all of us have less privacy. Now, um, I, I'd like you to talk, too, uh, about one of the things that, that we see in terms of the imperious presidency is what I would call an imbalance of power. And you, you speak to this very well in, in a variety of ways, uh, torture, the Detainee Treatment Act, passing illegal laws. And I think one of the things that's most interesting is the quote from Damon Keith, democracy dies behind closed doors. It's a very eloquent statement. Damon Keith is a longtime Federal Court of Appeals judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and he wrote that statement in the context of a policy adopted by the Bush administration to completely close, on a blanket basis, immigration proceedings so that no one could be there and observe what was happening. And he said, that, that's like star chamber proceedings. It's the antithesis of what should be in a democracy. More generally, in terms of your question, I think that the genius of the Constitution is that it generally requires two branches of government to act to accomplish almost anything. You've got to have to adopt a law, Congress and the President, to enforce the law, the executive branch, and the courts, to appoint a judge, the President, and the Senate. I think what was so troubling to me about what we saw during the Nixon administration, during the Reagan administration, more recently during the Bush administration, was the claim of unreviewable uncheckable executive authority. We saw where this leads. For the first time in American history, the United States government adopted a program, implemented a program of systematically torturing individuals, including innocent people. You also speak quite eloquently in this book about breaking down the wall between church and state. And, and one of the things you do in this book, I think, very well is to create some interesting characters. So tell us about Thomas von Orden and his, his attempt to uh, deal with the legacy of Cecil B. DeMille's movie promotion efforts. Thomas von Orden called me collect, I think it would have been in the spring of 2004, uh, I was literally just sitting at my desk at the University of Southern California. I got a collect call from Thomas Van Orden, and I accepted it. Um, he had brought a lawsuit challenging a six-foot-high, three-foot-wide Ten Commandments monument that sits literally at the corner between the Texas State Capitol and the Texas Supreme Court. Turns out that in promoting his movie, The Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille had an organization, the Friends of the Eagles, donate hundreds maybe thousands of these monuments across the country, including this one. Van Orden had on his own brought a lawsuit 
challenging this in federal district court. He lost. He then brought a loss, appeal to the Federal Court of Appeals. He lost. He was he, homeless, wasn't he? That's just what I was going to say. He called me and he said, would you take my case to the Supreme Court? I said, I need to read the Court of Appeals decision. Can I call you back? And he said, very matter of factly, no, I'm homeless. I'll need to call you back. Turns out that Van Orden had graduated from law school, Southern Methodist University. He had practiced a lawyer for a time. Um, he lost his law license. He became homeless. I never learned the circumstances of that. He's an intensely proud man. I went down to Austin, Texas to visit him, and he was well-dressed and clean-shaven. I had offered to pay for his way to come to the Supreme Court, but he said, no, he couldn't take any money for that. Um, and I agreed to represent him before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, um, talk about the outcome of that case, because that was decided at the same time as another case, and the, it, your, the outcome was not as expected. I thought these were the ideal facts for bringing a challenge to a Ten Commandments monument. The Ten Commandments is regarded as holy scripture by a number of major religions. It traces back to the Torah, and in fact, each of the major religions that regards it Holy Scripture has its own version of the Ten Commandments. The Jewish version is different in some key ways from the Protestant version, which is different from the Catholic version. It was the Protestant version that was at the seat of the Texas state government and was also on all of these Cecil B. DeMille monuments. And I thought that this would be the ideal basis for challenging such a monument. The Texas state capitol and the Texas Supreme Court are next to each other, actually perpendicular to one another. And there's a corner there and literally anybody who walks from one to the other would see this large Ten Commandments monument. And at the very top of the Ten Commandments monument are the words in big letters, I am the Lord thy God. And of course, at least half the Ten Commandments are religious commands about not having any other gods, not having false idols, honoring the Sabbath, and the like. To put religious scripture at the seat of Texas state government would seem a violation of the Establishment Clause. I lost five to four. Predictably, I lost the votes of Rehnquist, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. They don't believe that religious symbols on government property ever violate the First Amendment. Not predictably, I also lost Justice Breyer, who was the fifth vote for the majority. You know, the, you talk about uh, Justice Thomas's beliefs, which are, are uh, with regards to the Establishment Clause. And tell us what the Establishment Clause is and Thomas's beliefs, which are shocking. <laughs> The Establishment Clause is a provision of the First Amendment. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. In 1947, the Supreme Court held that this applies to state and local governments as well. In that case, all nine justices said that the Establishment Clause can best be understood through a metaphor coined by Thomas Jefferson that there should be a wall separating church and state, high and impregnable. T Clarence Thomas unique among all the justices who have been on the court since 1947, takes the view that that decision was wrong. His view is that the Establishment Clause should not be applied to state and local governments. His view is that the Establishment Clause was just meant to keep Congress from creating a church that might rival state churches that existed at the time. So by the Thomas view, if Utah wants to declare that it's officially a Mormon state, if Georgia wants to declare that it's a Baptist state, that's fine. If a state wants to require or a school district wants to require mandatory prayer, that's fine. If a state or local government wants to subsidize religious schools by Thomas, that's fine. Thomas believes that the Establishment Clause is no limit on what state and local governments can do. For me, that's a truly chilling thought. You know, 
there's a, another half of, of this as well, um, which is the, the uh, free exercise clause. So I, I, when we talk about the establishment clause, it's often used to enforce the power of, of the majority. And, and you've talked about this a little bit before, and, and you talk about it tangentially in the book, and I'd like you to go in a little more detail about how this establishment clause on this side of the domain it has ties, I think, to deep ties to the evangelical aspects of the uh, Re- Republican Party and that, and that kind of ideology, where there are actual people who, who say this should be a Christian nation. 1980 was another very important time for the American political system. Evangelical Christians decided to recruit and register large numbers of Republican voters. And so much so that in 2004, it was estimated that one out of four who voted in the election self-identified as evangelical Christians. These individuals vehemently reject any notion of a wall that separates church and state. They believe that this should be a Christian nation. And the question is, to what extent will the majority of the Supreme Court allow them to pursue that and implement that philosophy? Well, what, I, what, what do you think and, and how, what do you think we face in the future and, and what kind of challenges, where, where do you think this can lead and how do you think that will come to the court? As I argue in the book, I think it's so important that there be a wall that separates church and state. I think that when the government becomes aligned with a religion or religions, those who are of different faiths or no faith are inevitably made to feel unwelcome as second-class citizens. They inescapably feel coercion to be part of a religion that's not their own. They're forced through their tax dollars to subsidize religions and things that they don't believe in. I think that there are five justices on the current court, Robert Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas Alito, who reject the notion of a wall separating church and state. What will it mean? I think it'll mean a lot more religious symbols allowed on government property, a lot more aid to religious schools, a lot more religious presence in public schools being accepted by the Supreme Court. You know, one of the cases you talk about is um, uh, Hannison and uh, the, the use of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, AA and NA, as uh, effective treatments for uh, substitutes for sentencing in in crimes. So talk about how that leads to essentially the, the government forcing people to be subjected to beliefs they don't believe in. One of the things that's happened in recent years, and the Bush administration tremendously expanded it, was allowing churches, synagogues, mosques, euphemistically called faith-based organizations, to directly receive federal social service money. It used to be that if a church wanted money to do an alcohol rehabilitation program, it would have to create a secular arm. If a synagogue wanted money from the government to create a Head Start program, it would have to create a secular arm. But the Bush administration, in fact, in the first days of the Bush presidency, created an office of faith-based initiatives to be able to give money directly to these churches, synagogues, mosques. Inevitably, that's going to lead to people being coerced into participating in religions other than their own. The Hennis case that you mentioned is an example of that. man in Michigan got caught with marijuana as a teenager and put on probation. Got caught again with marijuana. He goes to a drug diversion court, and the 
Michigan law provides, and many states have this, that if you successfully complete drug diversion, then your criminal conviction is expunged. And the lawyer for Hannes asked that he get drug diversion. The prosecutor said, well, since this is his second offense, I'll agree to this only if it's a residential treatment program. Hannes, who didn't want the alternative of going to jail, said, sure, he would do the residential treatment program. Well, it turns out at that moment there was only one slot available in any residential treatment program in that area of Michigan. It was, one, it was a program run by the Pentecostal Church. When Hannes got there, he discovered that they weren't giving him any drug treatment. It was indoctrination in the Pentecostal faith, even pen and pencil tests, paper tests, about the Pentecostal faith. So he went back to court with his lawyer and he got the ACLU involved to say, he should be able to have a secular placement that had violated his rights to force him to go through this Pentecostal indoctrination program. The trial judge in Michigan said, oh, you don't like what I put you in? Okay, you go to jail. And Hannes actually got put in, in jail in four years of probation because he wouldn't accept the Pentecostal treatment program. That's what I think happens when we eliminate the wall that separates church and state. Now, you talk about the eroding of the liberties of criminal defendants and our individual liberties. And you begin with uh, the example of somebody who's not a nice guy. But as you tell his story, and this is, I think, something you do very well with developing the characters, um, you tell us about Philip Wilkinson and his, as we fill in the backstory, his backstory is almost as shocking as what he did. His crime was horrific. He murdered three people. He raped one of them. He was in the military station in North Carolina at the time. He was not a suspect in the crime. He then was discharged honorably from the military and went back home, I think it was to Wyoming. He was overcome by remorse, and on his own he went to North Carolina, went with his minister, and confessed to the murders. Um, he ultimately went in on his own and pled guilty. Unfortunately, he had a series of incompetent lawyers. The lawyer who was representing him in the proceeding as to whether he would get the death penalty was described by me to me by another as somebody you wouldn't want representing of you if you were defending traffic tickets. And yet here he was handling a capital case. By any measure, Wilkinson received terrible representation. An example, Wilkinson's mother and father wanted to come to testify about his, Wilkinson's childhood, including how he'd been abused as a child. The United States Supreme Court has said that's important mitigating evidence for a jury to consider in deciding whether to impose the death penalty. The defense counsel said, no, there's no resources to bring you to North Carolina. Well, North Carolina law specifically provides for the paying of witnesses to come to the state. Another example, the minister who went with Wilkinson when he confessed and who talked to Wilkinson every week wanted to testify about Wilkinson's remorse. The North Carolina Supreme Court has said remorse is the most important mitigating circumstance that should cause a jury not to impose the death penalty. The defense lawyer refused to call the minister. The jury, when it filled out its form, found no remorse. And this is for a man who on his own went and confessed. Um, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit said, yes, counsel's performance was terribly deficient, but we think the jury would have come to the same conclusion anyway. And Wilkinson is still on death row in North Carolina. Now, this part of this, what's happening too, is that this tough on crime, you know, these are the kind of people, we 
what's interesting to me is these are the kind of lawyers you don't see on TV. You never, we never have any clue about this. I mean, we've got law and order, but we don't have flawed and sordid, which is what some of this looks like. And this brings me to the to the case of Iris Mina and this whole tough on crime stance. Let me pause on what you said a moment ago, which is so right, especially in states that have attorneys appointed by judges to represent those on death row, the quality of representation is often abysmal. Um, there's a famous case in Texas where the trial lawyer, in a capital case, slept through most of the trial. And then the Federal Court of Appeals refused to find ineffective assistance of counsel saying, well, it can't be shown that he slept through important parts of the trial. Thankfully, the whole Federal Court of Appeals overruled that both five judges dissenting and still saying it wasn't ineffective assistance of counsel. We've been talking just the last few moments about ineffective assistance of counsel. The MENA case goes back to the Fourth Amendment that we were discussing earlier. Mm -hmm. Iris MENA was never accused or suspected of any crime. What happened was the police had a warrant to question somebody about gang activity, and they knew that he might be in one of two houses. So the warrant asked for permission to go search the houses to find this man. And the police decided to execute both warrants simultaneously at 6 in the morning. When they went to one of the houses, the only person who was there was a young Latina, Iris Mina, 6 in the morning, she was still asleep, and just dressed in a flimsy nightgown. The police then detained her in handcuffs in a cold garage, just in her nightgown, and questioned her about her immigration status and the like. They kept her for a few hours in handcuffs. Interestingly, the police found the man they were looking for at the other house, briefly questioned him, and let him go. So Mina, who was never a suspect at all, was detained all this time in handcuffs and being questioned, as well as the humiliation of having a large male officers question her while she's in a flimsy nightgown. And the question is, did that violate her Fourth Amendment rights? Here she was detained, though she wasn't a suspect in any crime. In the Supreme Court ruled there was no violation of her Fourth Amendment rights. Well, also, and this is extremely shocking to me, you mentioned that there are Supreme Court justices who say it's completely constitutional to execute an innocent man. In fact, there was a United States Supreme Court opinion where Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote for the majority where he said that it is not unconstitutional to execute an innocent person. Now, I don't know that the majority of the court really meant that. Justices O'Connor and Kennedy, though they joined the majority, wrote separately to say they, they believe it would be unconstitutional to execute an innocent man. But as recently as the summer of 2009, Justices Scalia and Thomas, in a case involving a man named Davis, who's still on death row, took the position it is not unconstitutional to execute an innocent person. This seems just backwards to me. It's wrong. <laughs> and I would actually think that while there's not a large public sentiment protecting the rights of criminals, if you would ask the average person, does it violate the Constitution to execute somebody who's innocent? The answer would be yes. And yet Justice Scalia and Thomas have taken the position, as did Chief Justice Rehnquist, that the remedy for innocence should be clemency from the governor, but a court can't stop an execution just on finding that somebody's innocent. It's amazing. Now, uh, with the individual liberties, uh, I want to just cover real quick because you talk about something that's very personal to you. I do. In the spring of 1993, 
My dad was in a hospital dying of lung cancer. He was in enormous pain. The tumor had spread and was blocking circulation to his arm, and his arm had become grotesquely swollen and gangrene had set in. He knew that he had only a short time to live, and he saw no point in having his arm amputated. Late on a Monday afternoon, the doctor came to check on him, and my dad said, asked the doctor, could, he just, could the doctor just give my dad a larger morphine dose so that my dad would stop breathing. My dad said he knew that it was the end of his life and he'd never got out of the hospital bed. And the doctor very brusquely said, no, we can't do that. My dad was, to the end, a very persistent person. He was completely lucid and he said, I don't understand why you just can't increase the morphine dose enough so as to stop my breathing and end my life now. And the doctor literally turned his back on my father and went out of the room. My dad died four days later. In those intervening four days, he was either awake and in great pain or sedated in consciousness. I'll never understand why the state of Indiana had an interest in keeping my father alive those additional four days. The issue then became one of constitutional law. The Supreme Court faced the question of whether there's a constitutional right to death with dignity, to physician-assisted death. I would think if privacy means anything, it's the right of an individual to have death with dignity. And yet the United States Supreme Court rejected such a right. So every day across the country, there's people in the same situation as my father. Now, I want you to talk real briefly about what we can do, what can be done to remedy this. I titled the last chapter, Reclaiming the Constitution. I think we've got to start by realizing that we have a conservative emperor that has no clothes that the conservatives on the court are pretending that they're following some neutral judicial philosophy, but they're just imposing their own conservative values. You can understand what the conservatives in the court are doing much better by reading the 2008 Republican platform than by studying the Federalist Papers. I think what we need to do is to articulate a progressive vision of constitutional law, and I'm hopeful we can do it. Maybe the best way to end this conversation is the way that I end the book. Over the course of American history, there's been a tremendous expansion of equality and freedom. We've gone from a country that not only tolerated, but protected the abhorrent institution of slavery, to one with Jim Crow laws segregating every aspect of Southern life, to one that's moving slowly, grudgingly, towards racial equality. We've seen a society that started with women being property, literally chattels of their husband, to women not getting the right to vote to 1920 to one that's moving again slowly towards gender equality. We've seen the tremendous expansion of equality for gays and lesbians the last decade. We've seen an expansion of freedom from 1787 when the Constitution was drafted today. I believe that the trend will be in the future towards expansion of liberty and equality. But I think that these last few decades, when we've had the conservative assault on the Constitution, have really been a regressive time. I've been speaking with Erwin Terominski. His new book is The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.